Welcome to Core Conversations. My name is Kaylee Kukla, and I've spent more than a decade supporting children and families with challenging behaviors. As a mom of two, I appreciate how overwhelming and exhausting parenthood can often be. So I'm taking all of my professional knowledge and experience and combining it with real life, not just theory, to change the dialogue around parenting. We'll have powerful conversations and practical tools that will inspire you to get to the heart or the core of your child's behavior and make simple yet impactful changes. Hi, and welcome back to another Core Conversation with Kaylee. This is my second episode, and so today I really wanted to focus on the other part of the relationship. So the first episode, we talked about ourselves and our story and understanding why that's so important for entering into a relationship. But the other piece of this, the other person in the relationship is our child. So getting to know our child, understanding them. And when I think of this in context of parenting, I think of it as developmentally appropriate parenting. So developmentally appropriate practices are considered essentially the best practices in child care. And we base those on being developmentally sensitive to the ages and stages that come along with just typical child development, culturally responsive, community responsive. There's all of these factors that go into just getting to know how to serve our children and guide and lead our children. And so that's what this episode is about today. If your child presents behaviors that may confuse you or may feel like they are just trying to be difficult, it does not have to be this hard. We do it every dang day. Why does it have to be this challenging? This may shed some light on that for you. And my hope is whenever I explain child development, to parents is that once we understand the behavior, it depersonalizes it a little bit. We become less reactive and we can become more responsive because we understand that maybe those challenges, behaviors, they're not willful disobedience. Our child isn't trying to be difficult. They are having a hard time. And that is the mindset shift that is so foundational to gentle or intentional or respectful or conscious or attachment-based parenting, connection-based parenting, whatever you want to call it. That is really what we focus on is how do I best show up and support my child in those challenging moments? So to get to know how to support them, we've got to understand their development. And here's What I find to be really exciting about early childhood is that at no other point in your life does the brain undergo such rapid and intense construction as it does in those first three and then those first five years. So what's happening is this process called myelination and pruning. And those are just technical terms for we're carving out pathways in the brain. So myelination is when when the 
neuropathways become stronger and strengthened. And so the impulses can travel more smoothly. So it's like paving out a road or the analogy that's often used is a river. So it might start as this gentle trickle that's having to shove its way through rocks and gravel and sand. And the longer the current passes through, the more carved out the river becomes and the more easily it flows until you get like a big canyon or gorge or something like that. So that's one way to think of it. And then the pruning is just these connections that maybe serve a purpose early on, or they're just receiving random impulses and they're not helpful. They're not really useful. So it, it stops. So we're literally like carving architecture in the brain. I tell parents, I'm like, you're doing brain surgery without a scalpel is essentially what it feels like most days, right? So with that comes all of this stuff that's lighting up. So one of the things that I want to cover first is this idea of language acquisition. So we think of babies learning language or toddlers learning language around 18 months to two and a half. They'll start, you know, maybe having a small vocabulary, then they'll go through these big word explosions. And it's just, it's one of my favorite times in child development because it's so exciting to watch them make these connections and be able to communicate more about their world and be super inquisitive. It's just so exciting. But what this means, this language acquisition means, is that these are not fluid pathways yet. Children have to work very hard to find language that fits what they want, what they need, what they're trying to communicate to us. And they also need more time to process what we're saying to them. And then this continues. So language acquisition doesn't just stop at age like three and a half or four when, you know, they're talking fluently and they've got a lot to say and they just want to know why all the time. It continues through early adolescence. And so something I find, and we'll probably talk a lot about this actually on the podcast throughout, is this idea of parents trying to keep their children up at a pace that matches ours. We want them to keep up. So what often ends up happening is parents are pushing or pulling our kids to keep up with us and their brain just doesn't process things that fast. They may be moving fast. They may be exploring quickly. You know, every child has their different just pace of life. But in order to hear what we're saying, process the words, recall the language, and then do something with those impulses and then send those impulses throughout the body into action takes a lot of brain power. And so often by simply slowing down and giving our children more wait time, speaking slower, speaking more concisely, using language that focuses on what we want or what the message, what we want to highlight and spotlight. So it's easier for their brain to really latch on to those ideas. To drive this point home, what I typically use for parents is go back. You can find them on YouTube. Those old school Mr. Rogers shows. 
And Mr. Rogers, if you watch the documentary that was made about him, they actually go into the criticism that Mr. Rogers used to get because he would have so much dead airtime. He would throw out a question and it was supposed to be an interactive program for children. Then he would sit in silence and wait and wait for extended periods of time. And so, of course, the network executives and advertisers were like, this is dead air. This is unengaging. No one likes this. No one's going to watch the show. It's so boring. But children loved it. Mr. Rogers was adamant about giving the children time to really think and process and reflect on his questions so they could interact more with him on the television. Remember, this was well before Zoom or FaceTime or any of these, you know, truly interactive video screens that we have nowadays. But he recognized that importance. And so if we want to know how children, how long that wait time really needs to be for them or how much we need to slow down just our own pace, watch the Mr. Rogers when I watch it, as I practice this myself, when I first started watching it, it was uncomfortable for me because I am a naturally quick person, quick thinking, quick speaking, quick doing. And so it was a practice that I, I really needed to cultivate, to slow down and respect this language acquisition part of my child's development. So that's one of the first things I like to bring to parents is that language piece is so important to keep in mind. And the actionable steps we can use from that is to slow down our speech when we're actually talking to our child, to be very concise and intentional and thoughtful with our words that we use with our child, to focus on what we want instead of what we don't want. So for example, this would be the classic example is when we say don't run to our kids. Well, that negation don't is very abstract. It's later developing in language. And often if the brain can't make sense of it right away, because our brains like to do things very efficiently to save energy, it'll just drop the don't. And so what your child is actually hearing is run, run, run. And so what do they do? They keep running until we get so upset we start screaming and they're like, oh, whoa, mom, why are you so upset? <laughs> I'm running. You're like, yeah, don't run. So instead of saying don't run, we pick a concise word that's easier to process, more concrete, that focuses on what we want, which is walk. Walk to stay safe. Walk over here. So that's the language acquisition piece that I think can really help depersonalize when we feel like our child isn't listening, which we're I could do a whole episode just on listening. And we're going to dig on, dig in on that a little bit more in this one. But when we feel like our child isn't listening, or they're ignoring us, or any of those other potentially like triggering situations, the language acquisition piece and background can really help depersonalize it and maybe put it in perspective a little bit for you. So the second part of this I want to talk about is this idea of executive functions. 
And executive functions have become very popular. They're definitely more of like a buzzword out there right now. And there's a reason for that, because as we uncover more and more brain science, we understand how important executive functions are and how long (laughs) they take to develop. They are really slow to come online. And here's the reason why. Humans are born very underdeveloped. We have big enough heads. If our heads were even bigger at birth to accommodate the entire brain in its full development, we would not be able to pass through our mother's birth canal. It's already tricky enough as it stands, let alone if our, we came into this world with fully developed brains. So as a result, humans are born into this world without fully developed brains. And a major part of that brain, the prefrontal cortex or the neocortex, is very underdeveloped. And what happens in this part of the brain? Well, here's where we're going to start talking about behavior. When I start reading the executive functions, which are what happen in the neocortex, I want you to think about this in context of childhood behavior. So here are the executive functions, attention, time management, organization, prioritization, working memory, impulse control, flexibility, empathy, metacognition, so thinking about our own thoughts, goal achievement or task completion, task initiation, getting started on something, and emotional regulation. All of the quote-unquote good behaviors are on that list. And that part of the brain is not fully developed in early childhood. In fact, you won't meet a two-year-old with these skills. You may see glimpses of it at three, maybe glimpses of it at four. You may see more, you'll probably see more of it at five, more of it at six, but this development continues until the mid twenties. So these skills need so much adult support as they develop. And y'all, that is what makes parenting so exhausting in those early years. Well, Let me just say that, and there's a lot of other factors, but this is a large part of them. This is why we have to work so hard just to keep our children alive because they have difficulty sustaining attention. That's a developing skill. They have difficulty prioritizing like, oh, it might be more important to stop playing and eat because I need to eat on a regular basis to keep my blood sugar at a certain level. No, children don't think that way. No, the game I'm playing right now is the most important thing in my whole world. They lack that perspective-taking ability. They lack that ability to prioritize needs for themselves like that. They need that adult support. The impulse control, that's huge. So their ball runs out in the street. The impulse control is to just go chase the ball. So they go. They don't stop and look both ways. It's so much work. Impulse control in early childhood creates a lot of work for parents on us just being proactive to make sure the environment is safe for them. 
that flexibility. Oh my goodness. If I had a dime for every time a parent of a three-year-old came to me with their rigidity, like the difficulties transitioning and no, I want the blue one. And then the huge tantrum comes because there's just not that flexibility. That's, I call it switching gears. It's so difficult for the brain to switch gears like that and be flexible. Empathy. So perspective taking ability, metacognition, thinking about their own thoughts. So I call this, I'm like the voices in your head, you know, when you talk to yourself, maybe you psych yourself up or you recognize, well, maybe that's not what, you know, not helpful right now. Think about this instead. I mean, they don't have that yet. The goal achievement, knowing when you finish a task. So what does done look like? And the task initiation, getting started on something. Now, here's the interesting thing. It doesn't mean they can't do these things. I mean, two-year-olds really can't. But, you know, as children get older, but they need a lot of support. And here's the thing. These are the first skills to go down, to go offline under stress. And this is not just children adults, think of a time you were very overwhelmed, very anxious about something. If you've ever battled anxiety or depression, think of these are very difficult skills for people who are in bouts of anxiety or de- and or depression to access. Starting something just feels so overwhelming. So we just don't. Paying attention, man, that brain fog comes in makes it very difficult to stay focused throughout the day. Prioritization. I don't even know what to do first because I just, everything feels so urgent. And if everything is urgent, nothing is urgent, right? Not everything can be a priority. So emotional regulation, when you're overwhelmed, when you're stressed out, we're much more likely to blow up over small things, have these disproportional reactions. So when we start thinking of these skills as we really need to be in a place of maturity and regulation to be able to access these skills, not just for children, but adults as well, all of a sudden these misbehaviors our children may present to us become a lot less personal. We recognize that, wow, their brains are just not fully developed. Hey, we know that, right? We've had them. (laughs) We've seen them grow. We understand they're not fully developed yet. And also under stress. So I call this the flicker effect. When we're talking about, you know, older children in my book, in my world, older children might be five or six. So still very young children, but they may have these skills some days. Right? I have a seven and a half year old and some days my seven and a half year old is just on it. Okay, mommy, you know, I've got this or, oh, I already put that by the door. I'm ready to go. Look, I got myself dressed all by myself. And those are beautiful, wonderful days. You know, I celebrate those days. I'm like, oh, thank goodness he's got it. Well, maybe he wakes up really early one day. He doesn't get a great night of sleep. Maybe he's feeling anxious about something that's going on at school. Maybe he's stressed out. Maybe he had a fight with a friend at school and now he's going and he's got to deal with that. And then all of a sudden, these skills like prioritization, so him understanding it's important to go brush my teeth before we walk out the door or getting started, task initiation. So he goes in his room by himself and gets himself dressed. All of a sudden, it feels like pulling teeth to get him to do these simple tasks that he can, he did yesterday. 
there's that stress response. So I call that the flicker effect because it's like the lights are flickering. That part of the brain is flickering and it's going offline. And that's normal. It's normal. It's not a cause for alarm. But then the intentional parent in me needs to recognize, okay, this is not personal. He's not trying to make this difficult. Something's going on. And then I look at him and I decide, this is the intention. Is this simply a missing skill or is it a stress behavior? It could be a combination. One could be more than the other. But what matters is I look at it as he needs my support. He needs my help because if he was capable of doing it in this moment, he would. Children, all humans like to feel capable. They like to feel empowered. They like to have a sense of agency and control over themselves and their environment. They like to stay in connection with their attachment figures and their loved ones. So if they're struggling, if they're misbehaving, quote unquote, missing the behavior, it's not a willful disobedience. It truly is a missing skill or a stress behavior or a combination of the both. So that means we talk about how do we show up because our greatest discipline tool is how we respond to our child. So if we respond calmly and confidently with this idea that, oh, or with this energy and the idea that, oh, we can handle this. We got this. That translates to our children understanding that this situation is safe. We can handle it. I can regulate through it. And they use us to help navigate through it. This conversation is made possible through my core membership program. If you want to dive deeper into parenting questions, connect with a like-minded community, have access to a huge database of workshops, guidebooks, and weekly Q&As with me so I can answer all of your parenting questions, all for less than $20 a month, go to www.kayleekukla.com backslash core to learn more. That's www.c-a-l-e-y-k-u-k-l-a.com backslash c-o-r to learn more. It's also linked in the show notes. Now let's get back to our core conversation. When we're talking about stress behaviors, I want to highlight this idea of a hierarchy of needs, so to speak. And there is a lot of different theories, psychological theories, educational theories that go into talking about, you know, a hierarchy of needs. So Dr. Bruce Perry's work talks a lot about, he uses an inverted pyramid actually, and and reason is at the bottom, so the tip. And then it's relate in the middle and it's regulate at the top because we have to do that first. And what that really communicates is there is a need for physiological and emotional and relational safety. We have to feel safe before we're willing to relate to someone and we have to be willing to relate to someone 
willing and able to relate to someone before we can reason with them and problem solve and collaborate with them. So the other pyramid of needs that gains a lot of popularity and it's kind of seen as, you know, outdated now, but it's still a great working model to kind of build around this idea of Maslow's pyramid and what that essentially says we have to meet those basic needs before we can move up into higher order thinking and self-actualization and all of these things. So what I think about first is, you know, these physiological needs for our children. We cannot regulate with an overtired, overhungry, overstimulated child. We could be the calmest parent in the whole doggone world. It's not going to make a bit of difference if our child's blood sugar is super low, and in our family, I'll just share this guy, share this with you. We have a code word. We use a color coding system for our level of hunger. And this actually started, this is so silly, but I think it's really helpful in our parenting journey. It actually started when my husband and I were dating and we've been together for like 18 years. So we were teenagers and I've always been sensitive to low blood sugar. And so I would mention to him like, hey, I'm starting to feel hungry. And then he wouldn't want to stop. You know, if we were exploring somewhere, walking around, he wouldn't necessarily want to stop right away. And I would get increasingly irritable as I got more and more hungry. (laughs) And so finally I was like, I'm past code red. I'm not even code red anymore. I am code purple. And so code purple has stayed our family code word for like food is number one priority. Drop everything and find something to eat. And so when we look at our children falling out due to hunger, we'll look at each other and say, hey, we've got a code purple situation. (laughs) Let's find some food. Because We could be the calmest parents in the world in that moment. We could stay calm for hours on end. That's not going to help my children find calm if they need to eat. My calmness is not going to help them stay calm if they need to sleep. Now, my calmness might help them fall asleep, right? But I'm not going to continue to keep them up for hours and just be like, oh, they'll calm down eventually because I'm calm. No, 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 no. They need to sleep. So that's where I think about sometimes just prioritizing nothing but those physiological needs if that's why they're falling out. And then we talk about, and this goes hand in hand with safety for children because they need those basic needs met. And the way they get those needs met is through a safe relationship with their primary caregiver. So That looks like not just physical safety, so not fearing and not feeling threatened of pain, like spanking, for example, but also relational safety. And the best way I have to teach this is think about if you were to meet a friend for lunch and you're sitting there and you've just been going through a really tough time and you really need to share with them what, like update them on what's going on. You're feeling very vulnerable. And they're sitting on their phone scrolling. You're not going to feel safe. There's not going to be that relational safety so that you feel like you can open up to them and share those vulnerable pieces of yourself to them. So that's what relational safety is like. Do I matter to you? Do you understand? Do you see me? 
That's the relational safety piece. And then we can move up to social belonging. So that connection, do I feel validated? Do I, again, feel understood? Is our relationship, are there healthy, clear boundaries? All of those pieces. And then we can keep moving up to then higher order thinking. And then those executive functions start coming online or more easily acceptable. The engagement is there, the collaboration, the child's sense of agency, and and all of these beautiful things start happening. So when we look at behavior is really telling us there's a need there, there's a need there. And how do we prioritize that to really help our children feel like their needs are being met and our needs are being met too. Whenever I talk about meeting needs, so often in parenting conversations, we can focus so much on the children and our needs go unchecked. And there will be a separate episode about that. So I just want to point that out. The last thing I want to do, because this just was a very general overview about those executive functions, about those needs and understanding the misbehavior and depersonalizing it. The last thing I want to talk about is, so how do we discipline? How do we show up to our children? And we show up if our response is our best teaching tool. How do we do that? How do we discipline? And here's the thing. Discipline means to teach. And when we're thinking about teaching our children, we need to think about when are we able to teach and when is our child able to learn? And the answer is when they're calm, when we're calm and when we're engaged and when we're connected with one another. That's where the more, you know, question and answer and curiosity and reflection and maybe reading a book about feelings together or a book about a social situation that's tricky and sticky and we want to give them some tools. That's when you can, you know, people think of that as discipline, the more structured or the more explicit stuff, the more very concrete, explicit lessons. We also teach with our responses, which means when we come to a situation, how we show up, who we are, are we the confident leader in that situation? Are we the curious one that shows up open to listening? Are we the validator? Are we the boundary holder, keeping everybody safe, even when children are struggling to keep themselves safe? Or do we show up as super reactive and shamey and blamey? And I'm not looking for perfection here. I just really, on this podcast, from this point on, now and forever, let's be really clear that there's no such thing as the perfect parent. You will hear that in later discussions with other professionals between myself and them, that we are not the perfect parents. This is what we strive to do, right? This is the best practice. And then when you put it in practical practice, it comes across as, look, we're going to be the calm, safekeeper, confident parent as much as possible. And that's great. But expecting perfection is going to set ourselves up for failure. And it's just not a mindset. It's not the spiral we want to go down when we're thinking about this and when we're reflecting on our own parenting um, with our children. So when we think of discipline, just know that when they're in that calm, engaged state, we can do the more explicit teaching 
But the teaching, the discipline and teaching happens too in the way we show up. And if we show up calm and if we show up modeling the skills that we want our children to eventually be able to use, they will learn that even in those moments because children are wired to learn through modeling. Our species is wired to learn just by watching our parents do things. And you may even notice you don't explicitly teach your child how to speak with your intonation, but you may overhear them playing one day and you're like, oh my gosh, they sound exactly like me or they sound exactly like their other parents. So that just goes to show you how powerful the modeling really can be. And so that's why so often on this podcast, yes, we're going to talk about our children. We're going to talk about milestones and development and all those great things. And we're going to continue this conversation in the next podcast. We're going to spend a lot of time talking about ourselves because as we work on ourselves and as we grow and expand as humans, our children benefit from that. And so, and we have the ultimate control over ourselves. That's what we can ultimately control, right? And so when we focus on that, everything outside of that is much more likely to get in flow with us. So I hope that quick, very quick introduction to early childhood development, just understanding where your children are, understanding what typical child behavior looks like, the lack of impulse control, the lack of emotional regulation, difficulty sustaining attention, difficulty starting a new task. All of those things are 100% expected in early childhood. You are so not alone if that is a struggle between you and your children. And also knowing that we can discipline just by the way we show up and respond to those situations. Misbehavior is often a stress response. So if we can show up and decrease some of that stress, we're helping the regulation and helping those higher order skills come online. All right. Thank you so much for joining this core conversation with Kaylee. My goal is always to empower you with the knowledge and practical tips to help you be a compassionate and confident leader for your children. You can help my mission to serve families by sharing this podcast with a friend on social media or writing a review. Those are really the best ways to support podcasters. If you're interested in learning more about our core community, you can learn more at www.kayleekukla.com backslash C-O-R. Have a wonderful week. Can't wait to meet you right back here next week.